0: Hello friends, it's Cindy Silva. I'm here with Rosemary Thornton on the Metaphysical Wisdom podcast. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Rosemary. Thank you for saying yes to the invitation to join me for this conversation today.
1: You're very welcome. I like the name Metaphysical Wisdom. That's awesome.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Great. Well, you're in the right place. You like that kind of conversation. Um, One of the reasons I invited you on is I have an interest and I'm intrigued with uh, NDE, near death experiences, and um, you are someone who has direct experience with that, and I'd love to have you share with our listeners, um, (laughs) yeah, your experience, how it's changed you, especially your perspective. I really think uh, perspective plays a huge role in our life experience and choices, and Um, People that come back from these near-death experiences have a completely different perspective on life, and I'd love for you to
1: have the opportunity to share yours with us today. Sure. Well, um, I guess what we were talking about right before we went on here is if there is one takeaway that I wish people would embrace with everything within them, it's that everything we are goes with us and i had suspected that before my own nde and i'd been a fan of reading nde books i read i'd guess just about every book i could almost every book out there certainly every book i could get my hands on i thought they were fascinating and it's a comfort to talk to people who you know been pulled back from the abyss i mean you shouldn't even call it an abyss but pulled back from the other side and that was the most profound element to me as i had this experience that every single thing we are goes with us. And in my case, one of the most dramatic things that happened, and I'll share this, then we'll back up a little bit. But after my heart stopped, I was floating away from my body. And one of my first thoughts was, uh, I'm dying. And I've been a writer for 30 plus years, maybe 40 years now, certainly 30. And I thought, actually, wrong tense. You're not dying. You're dead. Well, it Mm -hmm. cracked me up. I thought that's pretty funny that here I am going on to my reward and my primary thought is correcting my grammar. (laughs) But it made me laugh out loud. And I heard myself giggle. (laughs) Yeah, literally. And I thought, well, that's very interesting because I'm pretty sure I, I, I don't have breath sounds. Don't think I have lungs and don't think I have vocal cords. In other words, I didn't have the physical things that we decide are needed to produce sound. Mm. And yet I could hear myself. And when I heard myself giggle, it was so affirming, but part of the joy of the whole thing was realizing that every single thing we are goes with us down to our moribund sense of humor, our Mm. funny little giggle, I mean, and and our knowledge of proper English. (laughs) (laughs) But the realization that I the only and I've even thought about this. I thought, what exactly did I leave behind on that gurney? And I thought, I left behind fear and worry and regret and woe and heaviness and sadness and remorse and guilt and all those negative things. That's what I left behind. Nothing real, immortal, enduring, spiritual. None of that got left behind. Even my weird sense of humor. So that was so comforting. And I thought, you know, I always kind of figured this is what death would be like. But it's really nice to know I was right. We just go on. And i there's a, there's a body of belief that maybe we don't even know we've died because the next experience is so similar to this one. And I've heard many people say that. And that's, in my opinion, that is nonsense. We know, I had no doubt. I mean, I popped out of my body like toast out of a toaster. It was hugely dramatic. And man, I went flying up and, you know, it was it was just so dramatic. And there was no doubt what was happening. I mean, I had been on a gurney in a hospital and now I was floating away from my body in this perfect blackness. And the blackness was not frightening. And I even remember thinking I had been pretty scared of the dark. You know, I mean, it's like when you're in a cabin in the woods and you open your eyes in the middle of the night, you don't know if you've opened your eyes because it's that black. That's what this was like. And typically I found that terrifying. And I would even take a nightlight with me just to make sure I was never in that pitch black. But I thought I'm scared of the dark, but I'm not scared now. And again, I'd left all that fear behind. And that was just so affirming and comforting and beautiful. So, um, in backing up briefly, you know, I had a friend tell me, and she's right, all anyone wants to know is what it's like to die. But the reason my story is a little bit different than the average story, the average NDE, is because it started, uh, it started with my husband's suicide. He came home for lunch one day, sat down, put a gun in his mouth and ended his life. And I had no idea that was coming. I had no idea what was going to happen and I went down into a pretty deep pit of despair, depression, hopelessness. I mean, to give you an idea, my husband had been a successful professional, and at that point I had written eight books, had just finished my ninth. And I guess I felt like we were a pretty important couple. You know, we had a lot going for us. We didn't have financial worries. We lived in a beautiful home. We lived in a house on the lake. It was all so nice. And uh, about, I guess, about two to three months into this, I found I could not get comfortable anywhere. I mean, I left the house. I left the house pretty much immediately, but I couldn't get comfortable anywhere. And so I took to sleeping in my car. My car had heated seats, JBL sound system, nice sunroof. It was very comfortable, but that also wasn't a great solution. I think once people become, I think once people fall to that level, it's not far for them to end up in a much bigger mess. And a friend found that I was getting awfully comfortable in that car. And she asked me to come live with her for a time. And I declined. And she said, look, here's the deal. You're staying with me. The end. <laughs> and that was a great blessing. And in time, I became very comfortable in her home and less frightened. And that was honestly the uh, the beginning of my healing. But I still suffered uh, terrible nightmares, terrible PTSD, terrible anxieties, crippling anxieties, so much so that I wasn't able to work, I wasn't able to volunteer, I wasn't, in fact, I lost the ability to read for a time, I mean, I've been a writer 30 plus years, I have had written eight books, I lost the ability to read, I lost my fine motor skills, I lost my gross motor skills, my handwriting during that time looked like that of an old, old, tired woman, I tripped, I fell, I had car accidents, bike accidents. I mean, I was a mess. And by the way, the reason I'm mentioning all this is this is very typical for somebody who has survived the suicide of a spouse. Your brain gets fried and you forget you forget anything. You forget everything but how miserable you are. So, I had been planning. I had a plan on uh, how to end my own life when the pain got too great. And every day it felt like we were getting closer and closer to that. And I had three prayers I said every night. And one was, God, either heal me or let me die. Because I knew I couldn't stay in this state. Mm -hmm. And secondly was, when I do die, spare me the life review. I had had recurring nightmares of my husband uh, with that gun. And in the nightmare, I was just reaching for him. I was running toward him and just reached him as, you know, it was too late. So I asked God for no life review because I thought, "I've, I've been through this enough. I've seen what he did. I've seen how it affected me. I've seen how hard and fast I fell to the bottom rung of societal expectations. And my third prayer was, um, I couldn't handle any more decisions. I had severe decision fatigue. I was tired of making decisions and his suicide caused some legal messes. And there were lots of decisions that had to be made. And I was so tired of decisions. So those were my three prayers. And, um, uh, 29 months after his suicide, I was functioning, but not doing great. And uh, I was diagnosed with stage two cancer. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. You know, I thought my prayer was pretty clear, either heal me or let me die. Not, I guess I should have added fast, not slowly. So I was horrified beyond, I I, I was disgusted with God, like, haven't I been on the rack enough haven't I been tortured enough? Do we need to throw this one in the mix too? So I was pretty upset, and it was a related, uh, was a related surgical procedure. They were actually doing a biopsy to determine how far the cancer had spread. And uh, you know, I was in a hospital, and I had general anesthesia, propofol. And um, it was after that biopsy that uh, I was sent home, despite the fact I was bleeding profusely. And I told the nurse that was attending me in the recovery room that I was bleeding profusely and told her three times. And she said, once you get home, you'll be fine, which it turns out I've subsequently learned a gynecological bleed is considering considered a life-threatening emergency, which there's a reason they consider it that well at home things got worse. And uh, I remember I went and stood in my walk-in shower because I thought I'm not going to mess up my white carpets because, you know, when you're bleeding to death, housekeeping is very important. You don't want to leave a mess for your descendants. So <laughs> I uh, I did call an ambulance and uh, that was hard to do because I thought I'm bleeding to death in my own shower. How comfortable, how convenient. Something somebody had read me, I think it's First Corinthians 10, 13, but it was, God will show you a way out. And so here I am in my shower. I know I, I'm getting faint, lightheaded, weird. And I thought, hmm, this could be the way out. This could be God's mercy. This could be ending in a minute. So I think that's pretty appealing. But I also thought of the people who had worked so hard to save me, people who had really given me their all, even when I saw nothing in myself worth saving. So I stepped out of that shower. I was taken to an ER near my home, and they made a few more mistakes. (laughs) And uh, I was lying on that gurney, now in the ER, a little tiny ER, didn't even have a hospital connected to it. I was lying on that gurney. And, uh, I grabbed the nurse's hand. The nurse was to my left and the doctor was examining me. I grabbed the nurse's hand and I said, promise me, you're not going to let me die. And she said, Oh honey, we have many solutions for this. We're not going to let you die. I was like, well, okay, good to know. Well, they left the room after the exam. A friend of mine was sitting with me in the room and he told me later, he said, at one point your blood pressure went to 32 over 25, which Mm -hmm. is pretty much gone. And then, uh, He said, and he was standing up to get the nurse back and then the blood pressure went uh, or the next thing that happened was I tried to sit up on the gurney. My eyes had been shut at this point, but my eyes popped open and I tried to sit up and I couldn't. So I reached my arms up to heaven. He said, you talk to somebody only you could see. And uh, he said, and then you flop back down on the gurney, you shut your eyes and then the blood pressure monitor said error, (laughs) which probably meant it was lower than 32 over 25. But I was having a wonderful time. I remember I remember being awakened by that feeling of being catapulted out of my body. And it was almost to the point of jarring, but boy, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> and it was akin to being awakened from a deep, dreamless state. And I woke up in a second. I, I mean, I woke up with a start like, whoa. And I remembered everything. I remembered I'd been in that ER. And I that's when I thought my very first thought was, my heart has stopped. I thought, how do I know that? I thought, I don't know how I know that, but I know that's right. And then uh, my next thought was, you know, the one about I'm dying, and no you're not dying, you're dead. And the thing was it was very factual, very matter of fact. It was not, oh my goodness, look what happened. It's huh, Sky is blue, the green is the grass is green, water's wet, I'm dying. And then very soon after this, I'm floating in this blackness. And the blackness, again, as I said, was actively comforting me. It was like I was being actively infused through and through with peace. It was just so, such perfect peace. The peace, the peace, the peace. I even thought about the Bible verse, the peace that passeth all understanding. And I thought, this is what Paul was talking about, that perfect peace. that No one can understand it. I thought, I'm experiencing perfect peace. I always wondered what it was like. You know, I know a lot of people talk about the love. Well, uh, as a writer, I've always been too anxious. I tend to ruminate, tend to think on things too much. Um, I've been nervous, you know, frightened of a lot of things. And being um, separated from that was so pleasant. And I remember thinking, I've always wondered what I would look like with no anxiety, no fears, no worries, no cares. And I, This is great. This is super. And at some point early on, I felt the presence of a massive spiritual being to my left and way bigger than me. And um, with me to my left, over my left shoulder. And I turned my head to the left, which was kind of silly because I thought I'm in this perfect blackness. I can't see a thing. But I said, with a lilt in my voice, I said, and who are you? Mm-hmm. And the answer was immediate. Even before I could finish that simple question, the answer was you, Rosemary, you are the image and likeness. I'm the original. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's so great. And I, there's not a day in my life. This happened four and a half years ago. There is not a day in my life that I don't think about that, that there is an original original. And I'm but the image and likeness, which is Genesis 1:26. So that was uh, talk about awe-inspiring. That was awe-inspiring. And it felt and, and as so many people say, it was more than just those words. It came with an infusion of knowledge. I've spent my life wondering, what does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God? And I was like, I get it now. This is what it means. There's an original. I just can't tell you how comforting that was. Well, this experience went on and on. So many thoughts. I mean, I know we've got limits on our time. But uh, I was with an, after I was no longer in the presence of this mass, massive spiritual being, I had one or more angels or spiritual guides with me. And they were just chattering away with me. They talked to me and they told me many things that explained a lot about my life. And In this experience, I had such a sense of familiarity, and I told the angel that was with me, I said, I've been here before, like within these 59 years of life, I've been in this space before. And the angel said, yes, as an infant, remember your mom told you you were given up for debt at one point. She said, that wasn't a close call. (laughs) She said, you came here and you were sent back then. I was like, wow, that explains a lot, explains the fascination with NDEs. It explains what I would call a heightened sense of being aware that we are not alone on this earth. Our real family are not the people related to us by DNA. In fact, a friend of mine said, you know what DNA really means, right? It means does not apply. <laughs> I love that. But I was with my family. I was with my spiritual family and they they were crazy about me and I I mean, as is, you know, I've always, I've always been that person who reads too many self-improvement books, has mantras all over my house, affirmations on every wall, starts the day with all these powerful affirmations, but I found my spiritual family and they were not like, they were not like my family of origin. Let's just say that they thought I was wonderful. Adorable is the word that comes to mind. They just thought I was great, and I, I didn't want to leave that. I mean, i waited my whole life. I've been such an outsider. You know, when you've had profound spiritual experiences, one, you learn to shut up about them, and I don't know why. You know, the Bible says the Lord said it, the solitary in families. I think, uh, I think my experience has been the Lord sets people with heightened spiritual awareness around people who don't get it. <laughs> and then you know in time again you find your earth family you find those people that you share those those qualities with and and but but yes in this experience i remember that so clearly it's just being with people who adored me being with people who thought i was great they weren't saying you know if you could just stop that annoying habit if you could just learn to be more focused if you would just stop talking about angels if you would just stop filling the blank they were like you're wonderful you're great we're so glad to be with you right now I guess that's love. I guess it was just perfect love. So I knew early on, I mean, the second I popped out of that body, one of my first thoughts also was, uh, I really felt like I'd been granted early release for good behavior. My 59 years on earth had not been easy. I had a father that made no secret of the fact that I was, well, He didn't make a secret, he told me frequently, I was a disappointment to him. And when I was 14, he left and wanted nothing more to do with me. And then I, my first marriage was, you know, I had three beautiful children, but that marriage didn't end well. And then my second husband killed himself and I'm like, I've done my best. I'm out. And I was so grateful that it was over. I mean, just gratitude, gratitude, gratitude. Every day I've kept a list of five things for which I'm grateful and and I was still being grateful. I was like, oh, this is great. This is great. This is so great. And then um, I also remember thinking, I was supposed to start chemo, once a week chemo and daily radiation for six weeks. And uh, I remember thinking, don't have to worry about that anymore, do I? <laughs> I even remember thinking about my husband's suicide and how much pain it had caused. And I thought, I'm disconnected from that now. I, I just—it's like all the memories of the bad stuff on Earth were fully severed. It was over. It was gone. And an interesting facet of this is throughout this time, I heard somebody, like somebody a hundred feet away or more, screaming "Rosemary" over and I mean screaming, and sense of urgency, upset, almost panic, over and over and over. And she'd scream, and then there'd be a, a bit of a pause, and then another scream. Well, this went on, must have been forty times, and. I remember it, it struck me as like the buzz of an alarm clock, you know, the annoying buzz. You're like, oh, let me sleep. going to sleep a little more. And I, I've since considered if somebody screams your name, you can't help but spin your head around and think, what, what, what? Who is that? And I realized, Rosemary, that that was a persona. That wasn't me. That wasn't the real me. And persona comes from the Latin word for mask rosemary was the mask rosemary was back on that gurney the real me was with my family in heaven with the people that my spiritual family so i thought that was pretty interesting it was like what you you stop but it got more as this experience progressed her screaming became softer and softer and softer and i had the impression that she was at a fixed point and i was advancing like she couldn't she couldn't get closer to me which was fine but then at some point, I mean, this just went on and on and on. And and that's the other thing. I was gone. No heartbeat, no pulse. My heart had stopped for more than 10 minutes. And the interesting thing I learned about bleeding to death, which had been my cause of death, was that uh, you can't do CPR on somebody who bleeds to death. And the reason is they're just going to lose more blood. So as a fr- I, I did interview some medical professionals before I wrote my book, but I was told first they plug the leak, refill the tank, and then restart the heart. But I had lost so much blood that my heart had stopped. So to be gone more than 10 minutes with no blood flow to the brain, which means no oxygen, and come back undamaged is a pretty big deal. But I had no intention of coming back. I mean, I was having a great time. And then at some point I was um, on my feet, no longer floating, but on my feet in a white room. And this white room was so beautiful and so perfect in every way, and I thought, huh, I'm on my feet now. And I thought, I don't know if I have feet or legs, but I saw a door in front of me, maybe, I don't know, 20, 30 feet. And I thought, I know I can move toward that door if I have the intention to move toward that door. So I thought, let's go to the door. And I, I really was pretty much saying, out of my way, everybody, we're doing the door. I know what the door means. The door is last minute before you get to change your mind. Out of my way, we're doing the door. Don't need to discuss it. Don't need to think about it. We're doing the door. Well, as I walked through this white room, there was a mist falling and it was almost like a very thick fog, but the, the mist was swirling around me. It was everywhere. And the white in this room was so brilliant. And, and, and there wasn't, there wasn't any sound of, um, I'm sorry, I didn't know my phone was on. There wasn't any, um, any walls or, I guess there was a floor to the room, but I don't know. There was. I'm trying to say there wasn't any dampness. I didn't interpret temperature. It just was perfect. It was perfect in every way. But at one point, I tried to focus on an individual droplet of that mist, which seems crazy. I mean, next time you're in a fog, think about focusing on an individual droplet. And I was told your spiritual eyes have not acclimated to this new environment. But what you're seeing is not a mist, but they're particles of light. And before you go to heaven, you have to be cleansed from all the muck of the earth. And some people um, have a disease or, or a disease process or mental illness or whatever so heavily impressed on their soul, they think it's part of who they are. They think it's part of their own identity. And the purpose of this white mist was to just cleanse us, to purify us, to take all that off of us. As my friend said, which I thought was beautiful, leave your muddy boots at the door. Isn't that great? Mm-hmm. So, um, and at some point in that white room, and I I don't know the mechanism but at some point i was told if you decide to go back if you agree to go back you'll be restored to wholeness and i was like great good to know out of my way i'm doing the door and uh <laughs> i was pretty focused on that singular point point. <laughs> and i got to the door and the angel the spiritual guide was still right with me and i said uh i did pause and i said is this the divine will for my life and i couldn't even get out that whole question out I got is this the divine and the answer again was immediate and it came it came with this knowledge and the answer was no it's not but whatever you decide whether you decide to go back or whether you decide to go on to heaven you go with all of God's mercy and grace and blessings and care and love and I was told when you're trying to do the right thing when you're trying to do God's will there isn't a wrong decision and uh, that was the answer to my third prayer. I couldn't handle any more decisions. And deciding whether to go on to heaven or go back to earth is kind of a biggie. And that was so comforting. There isn't a wrong decision. You know, when we're really trying to listen, I, even today, I wrote it down and put it in my car. There isn't a wrong decision. And I also put, uh, either way, you'll be richly blessed. That's <laughs> in my car, too. So I always remember, I'll always be richly blessed. So. I had put my hand up to push through the door because the door was shut. I wanted to go through that door so badly. And uh, I had a vision and it was a vision. To say it's a vision is to minimize it. It was like I had been put in the room of this RN who had attended me. And, And this was a potential future. This was not, they were busy getting me back to life, but in this potential future, She was sitting on a metal stool in a hospital supply room, leaning forward, head in her hands, sobbing uncontrollably. And I watched this, like just an observer, like she didn't know I was there, but I sure could see everything, see everything in the room, see her, see the stool she was sitting on, everything. And she sobbed and through tears, she said, I promised that woman I wasn't going to let her die. And I lost her. I was like, "Oh come on, don't do this to me," because I am very empathic, you know. And I was like, "Oh come on," but I wanted to go so badly. I, I said, "Well, you know what? She's an RN. She's about my age. She signed up for this gig. This is what happens when you're a nurse. Sometimes you lose patience. I was, she, she'll be okay." But then the next thing that happened, I wasn't just a silent observer in the room. I felt her pain. I co-experienced her. Agony at losing me, and I was like, "Oh gosh, <laughs> this hurts so bad." And I I was surprised at the depth of her agony. I'm like, "Who am I to her?" You know, I'm just some chick that rolled in at the end of the day. <sighs> but I felt her agony, her agonal grief is the way I describe it. And I thought, if I I can hardly believe this now, but I thought if I can spare one person that much agony, um, I I have to go back. And man, was that disappointing. <laughs> So I put my right hand, I, I had lifted my right hand up to push through that door. I was also pretty interested by the fact right-handed on earth, right-handed in heaven. I am like, mm, cool. But I put my right hand back on my side. And I thought, I've actually, what I said was, it's going to ruin that nurse's day, maybe her life, if I die. And boy, in a millisecond, I was back on that gurney in that body. There was no whoosh. There was no backing up. There was no, it was just instantly, I was back in that body. This time, there was lots and lots of stuff happening. <laughs> lots of people in the room, lots of action, lots of activity. And it was pretty cool. I Again, I had just come back from the dead, but it seemed like immediately, as soon as I opened my eyes, she, the nurse, same nurse is in my face, and she says, what is your name? I said, Rosemary. What year is it? I said, 2018. Where are you? And I said, a crummy excuse for an ER. <laughs> and uh, she took umbrage at that one. But I shared this story with an anesthesia, a retired anesthesiologist, and he became emotional. And he said, I don't know that you can understand how grateful she was that they had made the right decision in bringing you back. And I thought, oh, OK, but that's what that was about. Ten minutes without blood, any blood to the brain is pretty ominous. So they would put me in an ambulance, whisked me away. And when they put me in that ambulance, I mean, <laughs> this is kind of funny. So, you know, I've died. They got me back but I have bled out, which is pretty, pretty bad. (laughs) Nobody wanted to be with me. The people in that little ER are like, get her (laughs) out of here. People were like in the ambulance, drive faster. I think they were truly, genuinely, deeply concerned that I would die again and might not come back the next time. When they loaded me in that ambulance, I had a full oxygen mask on. And I don't know, and I had a, I had an oxygen cannula in the ER, but when I woke up, um, and my friend said, my friend who attended me he said, uh, he said, you were literally white as a sheet. You hear that phrase, but until you see it. And he had been a medic in Vietnam. And he said, I've seen a lot of corpses that looked a lot better than you did, <laughs> but I had the blue lips and the blue under my eyes. So I was in pretty rough shape. When they loaded me in that ambulance, I was just happy as a lark. I was like my whole life. I've been reading about these NDEs and I just had one. It wasn't like the ones I read about, but boy, it was fun. I had a great time and I've just had one. And, uh, <laughs> In that ambulance, um, you know, they had the oxygen mask on. Some very substantial angel was with me in the ambulance. And later I asked my friend, was there any humans in that ambulance, you know, like in the back with me? And he said, yes, there was an attendant taking care of you. And I was like, oh, it seemed like that angel took up a lot of space, a lot of space. And the angel, she kept telling me funny stories you know, the ambulance is speeding down city streets. When they had carried me from my home to that little ER, they had not used lights and siren. But when they carried me from that ER to the, the trauma something hospital, they used lights and siren and they went super duper fast. <laughs> so, because uh, I, I remember we were on the interstate and I was familiar with the interstate. And all I could see was that little window out the side door of the ambulance. And I kept looking you know, out that window and I thought, we're going about 100, I think, because we were passing the cars doing 60 like they were standing still. And I thought, yeah, they're afraid I'm going to die. But there was an angel in the back of the ambulance with me, and she kept telling me funny stories. Funny, funny stories. One of I consider myself to be pretty funny, but this angel was extremely funny. and And I was laughing so hard. I know the attendant thought that I had, you know, gone around the bend mentally. And I remember I took the oxygen mask off more than once because, you know, it has that elastic band around it. I took that oxygen mask off repeatedly because I was laughing so hard at these, this funny angel that was cracking me up. And the attendant, I do remember this, the attendant came over one time and he he snapped it back on. He said, do not take that off again. <laughs> Yeah, I was having a good time. And I remember thinking, I've just died, but I'm the happiest I've ever been in my whole life. So they took me to the hospital, and I was there for four days, and lots of amazing things happened there. When my people, I had a couple friends staying with me at the hospital. When they had to walk out of the room, you know, they go get meals or whatever. Uh, the angels would surround my bed, you know, the two sides and the foot of the bed, and they would sing to me. And they sang me the most beautiful songs. And I told the angels, I said, I'm really good with houses. My background is in architectural history. My books are about architectural history. I have an amazing memory for images. And I told the angels, but melody and lyrics? I don't think I'm going to be able to remember this. And the angel said, this isn't for you to remember. This is for your healing. This is for your peace. And this is for your joy. And they said, this is a thank you for coming back. We know how hard it is to see heaven. And come back to this, and uh, I sobbed like a child. And um, because their music was so beautiful, it was so incredible. And the angels were very tall. They were made of light. Their gowns were made of light. Their gowns were like made of energy. <laughs> and and they were in gowns, and they were very, like I said, very tall. And when they sang, they glowed even more brightly. And their songs were glorifying God. That was the nature of their songs. It's like they were just saying, don't look at us. Look at the glory of God. And uh I cried and I, would, I was sobbing from just the intensity and the joy. And I said, don't stop. <laughs> but this is pretty intense. And then um I was discharged four days later. There, during the time I was in the hospital, there's a lot of very dire predictions. I had had a heart attack. The doctor affirmed through my blood work and elevated enzymes that I'd had a heart attack. And they were very concerned about my heart muscle and damage and blah, blah, blah. And I said, no, the angel said, if I agreed to come back, I'd be fine. <laughs> and in fact, at one point, they're wheeling my gurney down the hallway to do the test for my heart. And I said, you know, we, I was looking at the attendant behind me and I said, we don't need to do these tests. Angel said, I'd be fine, fine, fine. I'm sure I am. You know, just turn this thing around. Let me go back to my room. Anyway, all the, at every point in turn, Um, the doctor would say, Mrs. Thornton, you're a very lucky woman. There's no damage to your heart, none. And then there was an expectation that there could be kidney damage and uh, also blood clots. They were very concerned about blood clots because I learned this about the body. When you bleed out, um, your body will cut off uh, circulation to your legs and even your arms, and then eventually to your midsection, trying to preserve the heart, lungs, and brain. So it's the core that gets preserved when you're low on blood. And I had lost enough blood that there wasn't even enough in my heart to keep things going. So there was a lot of concern about blood clots. And I'm not sure of the medicine behind that. But they um, they were concerned that you know, I wasn't out of the woods yet. And I said, no, I'm, I'm going to be fine. <laughs> and there were an awful lot of dire predictions and a lot of expectations that I'd be compromised And one of the things I noticed when I came back, uh, I mean, I was 59 years old at the time, and I had suffered from some high-frequency hearing loss, too many years of rock and roll. When I came back, I could hear conversations all the way down the hallway, and I realized my ears were restored. And I had had a busted shoulder from an accident, and I had a busted left knee, and a couple other things. And the knee was restored. The shoulder, the shoulder was so damaged. Um, that when I had a chiropractor work on me, she said, your shoulder's pretty jacked up. You could see physically look in a mirror, gone, all of it gone. So as a friend said, I came back with a reboot. I came back not as Rosemary V2, but Rosemary V27. <laughs> and then the, um, the big thing was um, uh, my soul was healed. My soul got restored. You know, that's the 23rd Psalm. He restoreth my soul. That was my real need i i felt like somebody had uh found the key to the shackles on me that tied me to this grief the pain the misery all of it and i had literally been unshackled and i was able to forgive my husband but more importantly i was able to forgive myself one of the last things my husband said to me was to inflict some guilt and i had been released from all of that and uh and it took a while. It turns out when you go back to your oncologist and he said, you need to start chemo as soon as your, your blood work is okay. He said, oh, no, 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 I don't need that. Turns out I was healed in heaven. It doesn't go well. He put mentally ill on my chart. <laughs> and I had to find another oncologist And uh, because I wanted to affirm it. I didn't want to go the rest of my life wondering, you know. So I found another oncologist, actually in another part of the state. And uh, it took a lot of of effort, a lot of time, but she did another surgical biopsy. But this time, she took lots of tissue from lots of places. And again, my friend was waiting out in the waiting room after the surgery, and she came out of the surgery, and she said, not only is there no cancer, she said, not one cell, she said, but her flesh is so pink and pretty and perfect, I wouldn't believe she ever had cancer if I hadn't seen the test. So it was an amazing restoration physically. And I knew that because prior to my diagnosis, I had had a myriad of symptoms, a myriad of weird symptoms. uh, And afterwards, they were gone. All those symptoms were gone. So that was five years ago, just shy of five years ago now. And uh, when I got out of the hospital, I sold everything I owned. (laughs) And I moved a thousand miles due west to start a new life. It was a pretty big deal.
0: Yeah. Incredible (laughs) still. Going back, you mentioned you'd read a lot of books on NDE, and this was before your own NDE. Correct. Interesting. Yep. And then you mentioned that it took away all your fears and anxiety, and I wonder if that's still true today.
1: I still struggle with anxiety at times, but it is nothing like it was before. Um, Yeah, I still have fear and anxiety, and, and it's a discipline to remember that's not who I am. In fact, the other morning I was praying about this because I've had a, I've had a personal experience. It was pretty tough. Because I honestly thought when I came back, everything would be buttoned up and beautiful. You know, I thought yeah. the car will never break down. I'll never have a flat tire. Everyone will say, ah, oh, we're so happy to see you. <laughs> That's not how it shook out. I've had, I've still had a lot of challenges. And I had something happen over Christmas that was very difficult for me at a relationship end. A relationship very important to me, and uh, I do still have anxiety, and yet I can go out in the world. I can function. I can enjoy life. And just the other morning, I was praying about this. And I'm like, you know, this was healed in heaven. You don't need to keep dealing with this. And it became so clear to me that that fear, that anxiety, that that panic, all of that stuff, has has nothing uh, nothing with my name on it. You know. It's kind of, I mean, they call it generalized anxiety disorder. They don't call it Rosemary's anxiety disorder or Cindy's anxiety disorder. And it's not mine. And the only thing connecting me to that anxiety is me. (laughs) It's not like it's, you know, been sucked in. And I've, so I've been working, I've been thinking about that every day, that it's time. It's time for that to be completely gone. Better is great. And when I first came back from this experience, It was mostly gone and it's kind of like it, you know, it crept back in a little bit. So I've been working very specifically, you know, the Bible says, bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. I mean, that's a full-time job, bring in captivity every thought. So I've, I've been working on that and going through this relationship breakup was extremely difficult as all my dear friends can attest. So yeah, it's something I have to keep working on. Its kind of and you know, I think part of it, I, I get mad at myself. I'm like, you're better than this. you know better. But I think part of it is, as a friend shared with me, this world is very dense. it's it's heavy. You know, there's a heaviness to wandering around on planet Earth, and it's too easy to pick up the thoughts of others and the sadness of others and all that, yeah.
0: So yeah, I I would agree that anxiety can be a collective program and if we allow our vibration to get at a certain level, we can be pulled in to it and what I'm hearing you share in your story is that when you were with your spiritual family, the anxiety wasn't there. You were remembering yourself as source and when we forget that, anxiety can creep in when we forget our true nature and so that's what I'm picking up on your share. And I'm also curious as to you know, why are you, um, I think I know the answer, but I want you to share, uh, you know, appearing on um, podcasts, sharing your story. I mean, there must be a reason that you want to um, let in other people in on your experience. And is, is that something that you agreed to in your NDE?
1: Oh, that's a great question. No, (laughs) it's not. But, uh, you know, it's really interesting. The, The reason I wrote a book, I'm a writer, you know, I mean, you know, there's, it's kind of interesting, different people from all walks of life have had these NDEs now. And for me to have when I was like, you know, I think I'm pretty good at writing, I can I can tell what happened. But I think the bigger thing is, I don't want other people to have anxiety and fear over life over death. And I thought, maybe my book can help people. And it it was not something that I was described or uh, asked to do. But when I came back from this experience, as soon as I was home, I got my laptop out because, you know, being a writer, I type really fast, got my laptop out. And I wrote down every detail of every single thing that had happened because I didn't want to get one thing wrong. I want everything. I want to be able to go back to it and say, this was you. This really happened. So I wrote down every single detail. and I sent it to a couple of people and they said, wow, that's incredible. But the other thing that happened about six months, I was living in the Midwest. I had moved from the East coast. Um, I developed some severe internal pain and when I would eat, I would get sick and let's just say food wasn't moving naturally through my body. And I, you know, I asked Dr. Internet what was wrong. And the answer seemed to be, uh, it could be adhesions from this because I had a subsequent second surgical biopsy. And, uh, I thought, oh, my gosh, that makes sense, because that's where the pain is, at the incision sites. And so I was sitting in a church service, a little, little tiny church in a little tiny town in Midwest, and I was just asking God, this, this can't be right, that I have this dramatic experience in heaven, and now I'm losing weight, I'm exhausted, you know, I can't eat, blah, blah, blah and uh they have this ceremony it was a methodist church and they have this ceremony at the beginning of every service called bringing in the light are you familiar with that it's really cool they bring in a cross you know some young person usually is holding a cross and then behind them one or two people will carry candles and so they bring them up to the altar and set them up and i was at this service and i was really touched by the simplicity and the beauty and the fact they've probably been doing this for 2000 years i mean that's where so many of these rituals come from is you know right after the ascension of christ we're like yeah let's do it that way so as the the young people went by and the pastor went by i saw somebody else come right behind him and i just saw it out of the corner of my eye and it was an angel and it was an an angel with an attitude like in the the spirit of of, um uh i guess gabriel who's the fighter this fighter I think Michael's the fighter, anyway, it was dressed in like every picture, every statue you've ever seen of an angel in your life with the the chain mail and the the or the heavy shield and you know the helmet and all of it. And I was like, and he stopped, I was at the I was at the end of the pew, and this angel stopped at my pew. and I looked up and I was like, yeah, <laughs> it was very dramatic. And the angel said, uh, and this was telepathically without words, but the angel spoke to me and said, Stop worrying about your body. Stop worrying about what you eat. Stop worrying so much about yourself. Write that book and get it done. You have work to do. And I was like, okay. (laughs) And at that moment, I thought of a Bible verse that I loved. And it was surely the Lord was in this place and I knew it not. Which I think that was uh, the one who'd been wrestling with an angel. Isn't that? Yeah, I think that's who said that. I need to look that one up. And I, it, it dawned on me, it was so clear to me, the Lord is in this place. And I thought internally, like where I thought these adhesions were, where all this discomfort was, surely the Lord is in that place too. And it was so profound. And it, I felt a couple things pop internally. And the constant nausea and pain just evaporated. And I was well again. And I was like, that angel came with a message. And the PS to this is after the service, the pastor came back. It was my first time in this church. The minister came back and introduced himself to me. And the first words out of his mouth were, you're glowing. You have like this luminescence about you. He said, it's it's very dramatic. I saw it from the pulpit. And I said, yeah, I know. (laughs) And I went home and had two meals. (laughs) But that felt like a very clear directive to write that book and get it done. And it was hard. I did not want to write the book. People are like, write the book for money. Anybody who's ever been a writer knows you don't write a book for money. And the other thing is, the other story, the thing I get, because I get a lot of email, my website, by the way, is temporarydeath.com. The other thing I get all the time is, you know, you made it up, you're making the whole thing up. Okay, whatever. If I was going to make up a story about an NDE, it'd be more traditional. You know, there'd be, chimes and wildflowers in a big field and a tunnel and I'd see my loved ones and I would have done something far more traditional than this story about a white room. I could have done so much better. And then the other thing I get is, uh, you know, it's just your brain shutting down. Yeah. Okay. If it's my brain shutting down, how was I healed of all these physical maladies? How is it? I died with stage two cancer and I came back with not one cell. And that's why I think my story is a little bit different and yet important yeah. is I was, I was restored is the transfiguration.
0: Well, I oh, like that's about a great word. word. Yeah. What I liked about the white room that you mentioned is the mist, because in my practice of Qigong, we often use mist as a visual taking mist, mm. into our body, a white mist into each of our organs to do a cleansing and you referred to the wow. white a cleansing so that you know the qigong tradition is thousands of years old and um what you're sharing about your experience and and that same um connection to the white mist being a purification before you enter heaven so i can resonate with that and just be curious you know um that there's a mystery about life and we don't know a lot, and um and that's okay to not know, but to trust, to trust mm-hmm. life. And when we trust life, we relax. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm.
0: we don't try to. That is up. true. And then we can let our body rest and take in that energy that's always around us that has the potential to restore us to wholeness and let the presence mm-hmm. of that glow that was with you that day that was recognized by the minister. Um, just be part part of what um, travels with us in our day-to-day life and our interactions with other people that, that that's our gift to humanity is the field of energy around us and to keep that clear by the things that are brought to us in our awareness and our attention that help us see what gets in the way of that and I think mm-hmm. it's Process of elimination, more than anything, like you said, the persona that masks the light, and how to um, remain connected to that spiritual spark. And um, whenever we feel anxious or annoyed or agitated, we you know we're somehow not. Um, We may have a case of mistaken identity (laughs) with the persona and not the original, Um,
1: what'd you call it? That when you had- Persona is Latin for mask.
0: The persona, but then there's the one that you encountered that was the bigger version of you that said, I'm The The original. original. Yeah, the original. And then that's, that's true nature. Uh, not only us, but everybody we encounter, if we encounter in our relationships and relate to the true nature, the original essence of that being, instead of relating to their persona,
1: we're in a con- different, yeah, completely different reality. That is true. And you used the word earlier, transfiguration. That's a great word and a powerful word picture. And I had never thought of it in that context. I mean, being being raised from the dead is pretty profound and being raised from the dead with no consequences. The way I like to reckon it, it's like the medical and they call it a medical arts, but medical is like in this shoebox, you know, and here are the rules and you can't go outside these rules because it has the four walls. But when you get into spiritual solutions and spiritual healing, you're saying none of that applies. None of that is applicable. Yeah. Because in the world, yeah, in the world, they don't think, they think you have to do A, B, C, D, E, F, and G for a life threatening illness to resolve. And that's not what happened. And I guess the reason I do share one, that angel was pretty, boy, that angel was ticked. Never seen such an angry angel. But uh, I shouldn't say angry, but how shall we say authoritative? (laughs) Um, I wanted, I wanted other people to know about this because people say, the the skeptics say it's the brain shutting down. That's what the lights and the white and everything is. That doesn't explain my story. There is no explanation for my story because they're they're putting you back in that shoebox and saying six minutes without oxygenation to the brain will result in brain death, period, exclamation mark. Um, You know, there's no way hearing, high-frequency hearing loss can be restored in a moment. There's so many rules in that box. And that's why I really believe, with my whole heart, the next frontier in medicine is going to be spiritual healing. I mean, what is it? Seventy percent of Americans over the age of sixty are on antidepressants. We're a nation that's so anxious and so depressed and so lost, and uh, that's unfortunate. And you know, the number one, the number one cause of death in this country right now is heart disease, or yeah, you know, cause of death is heart disease or heart attack. Number two is cancer. And do you know what number three is? Medical boo boos, medical mistakes. And I've always wondered do I count as a medical mistake? Because <laughs> I died, <laughs> but I came back. So, I mean, I, I really think we've got to take some long, hard looks at better ways of healing and comforting people. Have you ever read Larry Dossie's stuff? Love, um, oh, what's the title of one? Be careful what you pray for. Murphy, yeah, I love his books and I love his works. And then Bernie Siegel had Love, Medicine and Miracles. Did you ever read that book?
0: I don't know if I read I know who Bernie Siegel. Is. It would have been years ago if I had read it. I know. Well,
1: my favorite story out of that book, something I thought about a lot. So he was an on, an oncologist and every now and then he'd have to tell someone, not infrequently, tell somebody, well, it looks like you have about 90 days or six months to live. Just go enjoy whatever you can of this life. And every now and then he'd run into those people that'd been given three to six months to live. Two years later at the grocery store picking out, you know, fresh avocados. And he'd go up to him and say, How are you doing? And the guy says, I'm healed. It's gone. That pain went away one day and never came back. So after seeing these stories again and again, he wrote a, he did some research and then he wrote a book. And what he found was when people had permission to go live the life they wanted. Often the disease simply evaporated. This it just resolved or dissolved. And I was uh, I, I bought a real estate property after I moved to the Midwest. I thought, well, I guess I need to have a house eventually. <laughs> and I bought a real estate property, and uh, it didn't work out. Didn't like the house. It was a boo boo. People make boo boos. And I was sitting in the backyard of this house, and I was like, man, this this was a mistake. Uh, well, I got so much money and I better just stay here. And, uh, you know, it's the back and forth when your soul's like, hello, <laughs> and your brain's giving all these brilliant arguments for for and against. And so I was sitting on my back stoop thinking about, oh, God, I'm really miserable. I hate this house. And I thought if I had, I found out I had six months to live, what would I do? And I was, Instantly, I thought, sell the house. And I thought, why put yourself through that? Just sell the house, just be done with this. And I I just think that's fascinating that in Bernie Siegel's book, he talks about people who'd always wanted to get divorced, got divorced. People who always wanted to get married, got married. People who always wanted to live in a, a ranch in the, you know, out in Wyoming, went and got a ranch in Wyoming. It's like, we shouldn't have to wait until we're facing death to go live the life that our soul is telling us we want to live, right? So I ask myself that a lot now. If I found out I had six months to live, what would I do? And I think I'd make some pretty big changes and go do them. <laughs> <laughs> that's an excellent message.
0: Yeah. And in your case, um,
1: God or the universe stepped in and did them for you. Yes, right? that is true. And that's true with this relationship I was in. My soul knew this wasn't right. You know, I wasn't, my soul knew it wasn't right. I'm like, Oh, I'll just be like Socrates with Xantippe, and I will grow spiritually, and because of my love and light, I'm sure this man will come around and see what a beam of light I am. in his life. <laughs> Are you familiar with Xantippe and Socrates? I'm I'm familiar with Socrates,
0: but I don't know what Xantippe
1: He had a shrew of a wife, or so he says, name, named Xantippe, oh, and know. she apparently was just not pleasant and fussed. And they did call her the shrew. Socrates, you know, everyone said, why do you put up with this woman? And Socrates said, she's teaching me self-discipline. She's teaching me to rise higher with my understanding of um, self-control and all the important virtues we should have in life. So I was in this relationship and it wasn't going well. And, you know, even your friends are saying, I don't know about this Rosemary, you know, but you're like, oh no, I'm sure I'm enlightened enough that this will all resolve. <laughs> well resolved by him kicking me out. That's how it resolved. So but it's it was very painful at first. And now I'm realizing, like you said, why wait for the universe to do that? You know, it did. I was like, no, 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 I'll suffer through this. <laughs> and that was one of the things I had uh, I had at his house. I had a quote on the wall that said. The universe will try to get your attention quietly at first, and then it might give you a gentle nudge, and then it will turn up the volume, and then it might give you a bit of a shove, and if you're still not listening, it will blow you out of there. <laughs> I ignored the first four. I waited for the detonation to send me to the sky like, you know, Wily e. Coyote and the Runner.
0: <laughs> oh, well. Second time you got blown out, right? Didn't you get blown
1: out? <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's the thing. A lot of people seem to think that because you've had an NDE or some ascended master, <laughs> nope. He, I am proof positive. You know, we're doing our best. We're trying to listen. We're trying to pay attention. But I have made some serious mistakes. You know, and I think I know better. But you know, we're in this. We're in this human experience to learn and I'm still learning. Yeah,
0: well, I think it's all experience, and it's neither good nor bad, uh, right or wrong, it's experience, you know, it's like nature, God, universe, having an experience through each of us, collecting information on itself, it's its only way, mm-hmm. to know and experience itself through relating to itself in other forms, and it's, you know, giving it as much freedom as we can, to have that experience and um, it seems like when our life gets too tight and narrow and limited uh, something will come in is to stretch that and for some people it's an NDE and for others it's other things and in the end it just gives consciousness more bandwidth to Hmm. um, know itself through the form and that's what it sounds like in listening to your story that um You have a completely different perspective on things now that gives consciousness a little bit more movement through you and freedom and um, hopefully a little less self-judgment and criticism.
1: And yeah, that is true. I think about, in fact, I I think a lot about being surrounded by those spiritual beings and how much they loved me. Yeah. You know, they didn't say when you do this or that, it'll be okay. They said, we're just crazy about you.
0: Yeah. Like
1: mother love. It's,
0: it's all about coming home to the now, like not waiting to be better in the future until we are okay. And so uh, so it feels like your writing must have changed in, since your experience. I would imagine reading reading your books before, uh, pre and post NDE, it would be a noticeable difference in the way that... Well, the big
1: thing... I I have zero tolerance for um I can't say zero I have very little tolerance for i guess foolishness like violence and anger and I don't know that kind of stuff and yet I still get sucked into it this man with whom I was involved would watch shows that were that made me cringe I mean they they were like TV is very violent no kidding, no kidding. even just the frenetic images and I, I, I got sucked back into it. And now that I've been away, and I'm actually, I came back to Virginia to be with some friends, because this, this really kind of blew me off course. And these friends have been so loving, but I realized I don't like that stuff. How mm. did I let myself get sucked back into this, watching television every night? Mm. That's not who I am. That's not really what brings me pleasure and joy. Right. And, uh, and they're out on a farm. The people with whom I'm staying live on a beautiful farm, and I, I sit on their front porch and just, you know. I don't know. I think about all the beauty. I watch the sunsets and the sunrise. So yeah, it's, it's so easy. Even when you've had an NDE, even when you've had a a massive spiritual reset to get sucked back into life on earth, you know, as with, as you say, the limitations, the sadness, the heaviness, the pain, the misery, it's so easy to get sucked back in.
0: It's all part of the experience.
1: Being a A lot of it I could do without. <laughs> yeah,
0: but knowing how to transport yourself through the different vibrations, you know, that having the tools when we recognize ourselves in a place that isn't uh, necessarily productive, that we can apply things that we've learned to transport ourselves. We're not trying to transform, you know, density into light, we're transporting ourselves from density to light. Yeah. So I really appreciate you sharing your story and uh, being here today.
1: And You're you welcome.
0: your website once, would you like to mention it again?
1: For our sure. And people can talk, contact me through my website. It's temporarydeath.com because I'm not a fan of the term near death near death is, you know, you're on a plane and it goes bad and they're like, pull it up at the last minute. I prefer the term temporary death experience, which is my website, temporary And my book is remembering the light. Well, thanks for share- sharing your TDE with us then.
0: <laughs> you're very welcome. All right. Thank you everyone for tuning in and um, I'll post all the links in the description so that you can contact Rosemary if you'd like. Bye for now. Thank <music> you.